So have you ever been leading the church through the Lord's Prayer on a microphone and suddenly gotten scared that you were going to forget the words? Anybody ever done that? <laughs> Me neither. I was just asking for a friend. I just, you know, it just, I, somebody wanted to know. Well, good morning, church. You guys look bright-eyed this morning. It must have been cold outside when you were walking in here. That's good. Well, I'm excited this morning. We're going to be continuing on in our uh, revival series. And I wanted to start by just sharing a few memories with you. Have you ever had those moments in your life where it's just obvious, it's just clear that you're walking on holy ground? I just want you to call back to your memory those moments where you just know that you're in the presence and you're sitting in the goodness of an almighty and loving God. As I was thinking about that, I spent some time, I was just sitting and I was just thinking and, and just trying to recall what are some moments in my life where I've just, it's just been obvious that, that God is near and, and that uh, his presence can be experienced. And, and for me, there were two memories that came to mind. The first one was the birth of both of my kids. Uh, if you can remember it, for those who, who have kids, just that moment, just that, I just remember being there in the delivery room, just being overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness and his power. It was amazing. It's like his power. He, I, I, w- I w- was experiencing a moment of, of, of nine months of him creating a life and bringing that life uh, into my presence. And it just, man, it was just powerful. I just remember holding uh, baby Channon and holding baby Kara and just, it was like thankfulness was naturally bubbling out of me as I just realized what God had done for me and in front of me. Now, the second memory that came to mind is a little bit different. Uh, The second memory that came to mind where I just realized I was in God's presence uh, was the memory of the funeral of a friend of mine from high school. Uh, Her name was Lindley. Lindley was killed in a a head-on collision between Borger and Panhandle uh, my senior year in high school. And uh, there was always something unique about Lindley. She was a high school student, but she was an outspoken Christian, and she was an amazing evangelist. And so I distinctly remember going to her funeral, and for the first time ever in my life, I heard the gospel message being shared at a funeral. And I remember being astounded as I watched at a funeral where Lindley's body was, was uh, laying in a casket, uh, high school students, friends of mine, and, and adults coming forward and, and kneeling and accepting Christ for the very first time. And I just have to share with you that I, I've never walked away from a funeral more encouraged and hopeful about eternity than I did that day. It was just amazing to see God move and work. And it just, it just astounded me as I was thinking about those two memories how amazing God is, how he was able to move and work and bring about and display his goodness, both in something that was obviously a joyous occasion, the birth of my children, but also in something that was so tragic and painful. God was able to move and work and show his goodness and his presence in in both of those things. Now, I also want us to think about those ugly times those times where we've been alive and the depravity and the brokenness and the evilness of man has been been so clear. 
And as I thought about that for myself, uh, the, the memory that came to my mind was, was watching the events of 9-11 as a freshman at, at WT. I was a, that was my first year being away from home of being an adult, if you will. And I, I remember sitting in a friend's apartment and we were eating birthday cake. My, my birthday is September 12th and they decided to throw me a surprise birthday party on September 11th, which ended up being a really bad plan, unfortunately. And we were sitting there uh, eating cake, but I remember having no memory, no, no, no inkling, no focus on my birthday, just being weighed down with anger, just anger. And I remember watching those events and as the news showed the, those, those planes striking those buildings over and over again, that this, this, um, this, this deep sense of justice began to well up inside of me. And I just felt this, this burden that, that justice had to be exercised on these, these men, these people who would commit such terrible acts of violence and evil. Now, in our scripture this morning, uh, that Danielle did a great job. Danielle's a, she's one of our uh, Z team members in the, in the youth ministry. You did a great job, Danielle. Appreciate it. Um, we get this, this, this small slice of a larger prophetic vision, a vision that, that Isaiah had received and, and in this vision, we have both the majesty of standing on holy ground, standing in the presence of God, and the horror of the complete depravity of man. And both can be overwhelming. But it's in this powerful vision that, that there's this, this, this hidden profound impact that I want us to explore today. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna spend the rest of the day, the remainder of our time, looking at the incredible importance of our calling as disciples of Christ. Uh, we, this, this, this prophetic vision is a reminder for us of the calling that we have to always be in prayer for revival and to be intentional witnesses of, of Jesus Christ. This, this, this vision, this, this calling is, a, is an invitation from God that we should not take lightly. It's a calling that invites us to stand on holy ground and enjoy God's goodness. See, our two-week series is entitled Revival, Five Words to Know. And last week, we looked at the first three words. Does anybody remember the first three words of revival? Come, oh, man, the choir, you guys are killing it today. That's what I'm talking about. They're closest to the pulpit. That's what I'm talking about. That was awesome. Great job. Nikki, I heard you too, though, so I'll give you credit too. Come and see. What a beautiful invitation. If you remember, we talked about that. We talked about that revival doesn't begin with an argument. Revival begins with an invitation. That we should be seeking out, we should be praying about the Lord uh, putting our lives in trajectory with people who need that invitation. Not necessarily people who already have faith in Christ, not necessarily people who, who already believe or may not even be pursuing God, but people who are open to coming and seeing to come and see what God might do. Come and see what God uh, is doing and accomplishing in the community of faith, in a small group, in a Sunday school class. And if you remember, uh, this, is, this should be the most encouraging part of last week's sermon. We said and we shared with you that come and see frees you from the responsibility to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers to all the difficult questions or all the, the whys of the world or the whys of why God does what he does or doesn't do what we expect him to do. All you have to do is be willing to say, come and see and share your story of what God is doing in your life 
and then trusting Jesus to do the rest. Well, uh, last week we explored the three words of revival. This week we're going to explore the two words that we need to know for revival. So I want us to turn back to our scripture, and I want to read for us again our scripture from Isaiah. Remind you that it said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? If revival is an invitation, our response should be, Send me. Those are the two words that we're gonna look at today. If revival is indeed an invitation, our response to that invitation should be, send me. And that's exactly what we see Isaiah do. He responded, when God offered the invitation, who shall I send? Isaiah immediately replied, here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me. And that just rolls off the tongue really easy, doesn't it? But the expression of that response can sometimes be much more difficult. Those two words, send me, can bring revival. It can bring revival both in us and in those we're invited to deliver God's message to. See, revival will come. Hear me, church. Revival will come when God's people are ready to receive God's invitation and they're ready to be sent out to do his kingdom business no matter the consequences. That's when revival will come. When we're ready to hear God's invitation, who will go? Who will go for me? And we're ready to say, send me before we negotiate based on consequences. But this isn't just a simple text, and it's definitely not a simple prophecy. So I want to remind us of this great prophecy that Isaiah receives. I want us to explore it a little deeper. So we're going to go back in time, thousands of years, to the reign of King Uzziah. He was the king of Judah, and he reigned for 52 years. And Isaiah the prophet says that this vision that he received from the Lord, it actually took place the year that the king died. Now, a good question for us to ask is, why would, we, why would Isaiah need to include that little seemingly minute detail? Well, the reason that's important is because that little detail dates when this prophecy took place. The date would be somewhere around 740 BC. And it is in this time when the Assyrian emperor Tiglath Pileser III has conquered many nations and he is going to conquer Judah. He's going to conquer Judah. So you have to get in your mind that the the season that Isaiah receives this prophecy is a hopeless time. It's a time of discouragement and despair. And during this time, Isaiah has a vision where he sees things that few mortals have ever seen this side of heaven. In Isaiah's vision, he sees the Lord God seated on the throne, high and exalted. And he's so high and he's so exalted that the train of his robe literally fills the temple. Just to give us a sense of God's grandeur and of his presence. 
I want you to try to picture that in your mind. Try to get in your mind this image of God in all of his majesty and in, in just this, this grandiose expression of his goodness and of his presence and of his power. It's so big and so huge that Isaiah could only see the train of his robe. How overwhelming would that be? How overwhelming would that be? And in this vision, Isaiah sees these heavenly beings that he calls seraphs. And these heavenly beings are flying around in the presence of God. And they're saying over and over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just think about that, sitting in that moment, being caught up in just the hugeness of God. And then you see these creations that that you've never seen before. And all they can say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Not only is his glory filling the temple, the whole earth is full of his glory. And as they cried out, the whole temple shook and was filled with smoke. Now, good question is, why smoke? Why would the temple be full of smoke? Why would God's presence be full of smoke? And the reason being is that the sacrifices that took place in the temple, that smoke would rise. It would rise from the altar, the sacrifice, and it would rise up to heaven. So it's an image of the sacrifices taking place, moving forward, moving upward into the presence of God. I mean, can you picture that? I mean, I'll be honest, I can't. I'm a pretty creative guy, but those are some huge things to try to wrap our minds around. But for Isaiah, you have to think it had to be overwhelming. He's standing there, this little small creation, standing in the presence of this huge God with these creatures he's never seen before. There's smoke. All he can see is the train of God's presence, but he knows that he's in God's presence. He knows that he's standing on holy ground. See, this image is designed to give us a sense of God's grandeur, his transcendence, of his pure holiness. See, holiness is a concept that we don't think about often, and we don't honestly don't think about often enough. But throughout the Bible, we see holiness being ascribed to God. And this description of, of, of God and his holiness occurs over 800 times in the Old Testament. 800 times God is described as holy. And God is holy. We need to remember that. God is holy. We are not. God is God. We are not. God is majestic and he's transcendent and he's worthy of praise. We are not. Now I want to pause for just a moment right here because I think sometimes we, if we're not careful, we can say things like God is majestic and he's transcendent. And we might say, amen, and have no concept of what we're saying amen to. So I just want to pause for just a moment and make sure that, that we kind of define our terms and we know what we're saying. When we say that God is majestic, what we are saying is that he, is, he has or he's showing an impressive beauty or dignity. So when you say God is majestic, you're ascribing to him that same sense that you get when you see the ocean for the first time. That same sense you get when you're on a mountaintop and the sun rises and it opens up and it just, just shines upon the whole valley that you're standing above. And you just stand back and you say, wow. And that's all you can say. 
Because anything that you would say, anything you would try to add to it, any attempt to try to describe what you're experiencing would fall short. That's what we're saying when we say God is majestic. His beauty can only be experienced. It cannot be described. And then when we say God is transcendent, that's a crucial word for us to understand. To be transcendent, that means that God exists both outside of and independently of his creation. So when we say God is transcendent, what we're saying is God is not bound by our space. He's not bound by our time. He is not a part of our creation. He is outside of our creation. And not only that, he is not dependent upon our creation. He's completely outside of that. Now, here's the beautiful thing about God. We didn't mention this word in the sermon, but God is both above and outside and not dependent on our creation. So he's transcendent. But God, the beautiful thing about our God and our, and our Savior, the, the, the triune God that we worship, he's also imminent. And if God is imminent, that also means that he exists and that he operates within our creation. So the beautiful thing, the balance of our God and, and our Savior is that he's not dependent on our creation. He operates outside of our creation. He's not limited by time or space, but he's knowable. He's not just this far off power source out there. He's not the force. Sorry, Mikey. He's not the force. He's knowable. A relationship is possible with him. That's the God that we're describing. That's the God that Isaiah is experiencing. So we'll get off that rabbit trail. When Isaiah realizes that, that, that this being that we've described, that that's whose presence he's in, in, in that, that he's standing before this holy God, he, he has a response. He replies with this, woe is me. Woe is me. I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why would he respond that way? He would respond that way because he had a clear understanding of who he was and whose presence he was in. He was in the presence of a holy and a perfect God and he was a sinful, broken, rebellious man. But what happens next is truly amazing. In that moment where Isaiah realizes he's a broken man, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm among a people of unclean lips. In that moment, a seraph, a heavenly being, goes to the altar and takes a coal from the altar and brings it over. And he, he cleanses Isaiah's lips. He touches the coal uh, to Isaiah's lips. And he says, your guilt is removed and your sin is forgiven. We ought to push back from our pews and say, whoa, when we read that. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because up to this point, our sinfulness would contaminate anything holy. That's why throughout the Old Testament, we see all these rules and these guidelines about not being spiritually unclean. And if you are unclean, don't go into God's presence because there's a sense that you would contaminate what is holy. But in this instance, what we see is not Isaiah's sinfulness contaminating the holy. We see God's holiness cleansing Isaiah's sinfulness. We, ought to, we all ought to say amen to that because we're all sinful and we need that kind of purification. Now we see this act of cleansing, this act of, of 
something holy cleansing our sinfulness at another place in human history. Any, any guesses where that happened? Anybody remember? Where something holy cleanses something that is sinful? It's the cross, the cross of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, just like the coal cleansed Isaiah's lips, the cross allows us to be cleansed of our sins as well. We are no longer contaminating holiness. Holiness is coming and cleansing us. So let's get back to our story. So when the Lord cries out in a loud voice, he offers a clear invitation, who will go for us? Who shall I send? And Isaiah replies with, send me. Those two words should inspire us and and motivate us to actions. Those two words should always be upon our lips. Send me. For revival to come, we have to be willing to accept God's invitation to go where he sends us. Now, here's where it gets a little bit messy. Do Do you know what message Isaiah was sent to deliver? It's very inspiring. Let, let, me, let me read it for you. Let me f- so God sends, this me- sends Isaiah with this message. Go and tell the people they're stupid. They will not understand. Go and tell them I won't heal them. Go and tell them I'm going to level their cities. I'm gonna burn them to the ground until the land is utterly useless. Go and tell them that not even a tenth of them will survive. Amen. Who wants to deliver that message? We'll start a line right here. But what did Isaiah do? He heard an invitation. Who will go for me? Isaiah said, send me before he knew what he was to deliver or where he was to deliver it to. See, he offered no negotiation with the Lord because he knew who the Lord was and he knew who he was. He knew how sinful he was and how quickly the Lord's grace moved to cleanse him. And so he offered no negotiation. He said, send me. And then he, delivered, he received the message and then he knew he, who he was supposed to go and deliver that message to. And we should carry that same attitude. We should be overwhelmed by the undeserved grace that God offers to us. So overwhelmed that when God says, who'll go? Who'll take my message? We, we should just, it should just bubble up out of us. Send me. Send me. After what you've done for me, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. That is how revival comes into this world. When we have an understanding of what God has done for us and our brokenness, when we answer that invitation with that kind of attitude, that's when revival comes. And so what I want to do today, I'm going to invite... BJ, I think, is he hiding somewhere? Okay, yeah, I'm gonna invite, y'all give BJ a hand, he made it. Woo. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to respond to that invitation. So before we move forward, I'm just gonna ask uh, BJ to start playing something beautiful. Uh, and you can go ahead and start whenever you're ready. Uh, and I'm just gonna tell you that in this moment today, in this place, an invitation is being sent out to you. If you have Christ as your Savior, if you've received His forgiveness, if you have been cleansed of your unholiness, God is saying, who's, who's gonna go for me? 
who, who will answer this invitation to go and take those two words, those three words of revival to a lost and broken world? Who'll do it? Who'll, who'll respond with send me? Who will understand what God has done for them, how much they've been forgiven of, and who'll say, I'll go, I'll go. I'll go where you want me to go and I'll say what you want me to say. It doesn't matter, Lord, because you have done so much for me. So if, if you wanna respond to that, if you wanna say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say, send me. I'll go, Lord, where you want me to go. I'll, I'll talk to my neighbor. I'll talk to my, to my coworker. I'll, I'll, I'll pray that you'll put people in my life. If you'll respond with send me, I'm just gonna invite you to come forward and kneel at the altar and pray and just tell the Lord, send me. Send me. And then as a reminder, what we have here at the altar, we have uh, this, these beautiful handmade bowls and inside of these small crosses. And we're just encouraging you to take one as you leave and carry it in your pocket as a daily reminder, just as, as the coal was taken from the altar and cleansed Isaiah. So the cross comes into our lives and cleanses us so that we can answer the invitation with send me. So we're just gonna play for just a, a moment. So do not hesitate, move if the Lord is moving and working on your heart. This is your invitation. This is your opportunity to respond. Let me just, um, just some response to those who answered that invitation. I just would like to, to pray over you. And I just wanna say too, if, if you don't understand what we're talking about, if you've never experienced that cleansing, that sense of your sins being forgiven, please come and talk to one of our, our pastoral team. Come talk to Kim, Rick, Roman, myself. We would love to talk to you about how you might receive that forgiveness uh, that we celebrated 
today. Let's pray. Father, whoo, you are so good. I thank you, Father, that there are men and women in this room who, who today acknowledge the significant expression of grace that you poured out in their lives. And they're willing to, to stand up and come forward in front of their, their friends and their family and their church and, and um, respond to your invitation with send me. I pray that we would see the fruits of revival through their expression of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.